um, Pastor Keith is still on vacation. Uh, and so what that means is that over the next three weeks, the newly affirmed preaching pastor-elect and I uh, will begin and conclude a short three-week series that we've titled Jesus Heartbeat. Uh, for this series, we will invest all three weeks into looking at what's commonly called the high priestly prayer, John 17, and I'll invite you to uh, begin turning there now. Now, certainly Jesus prayed longer prayers. We know he prayed entirely through the night. And we've seen Jesus pray in ways that would be for our instruction. We look at maybe what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, but I think it might actually be, make more sense if we call it the Disciples' Prayer, when Jesus instructed his disciples on how to pray. And so we could look at that prayer and, and find instruction. Who does he address? What's his posture in prayer? But I think that the author of this book, John, gives us this prayer in some ways the same way that he gives us just a portion of Jesus' miracles. We learn in John 20, 30, 31 that there are many other things that Jesus has performed. But John records these so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might experience life in his name. And so I believe that God has given us this little circle into Jesus' prayer, not just for our instruction, but for our own encouragement. It is a magnificent thing to consider that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, prays for us. Then in John 17, and even now, if we look at Hebrews 7.25, and I've said it before, but you can learn a lot by listening to how people pray, what they pray about. If I had a transcript of what your prayers have been over the last week, I would get a little peek into the things that you value. What's important to you? What worries you? What do you have anxiety about? What are you scared about? I'd, I'd learn about maybe a bit of your heart if I was able to listen to your prayers. And so rather than maybe looking at the mechanics of this prayer, uh, I want to look to see what was at the heart of Jesus' prayer. And so as we enter into what in some cases is like peering back the curtain behind the Holy of Holies and entering into the inner sanctum of Jesus' heart, my hope is that we would see and savor what we see with Christ. That we would see the focus of his purpose, the gravity of his mission, the the, the breadth and depth and height of his love for us and that this picture of Christ might catapult us as a church to greater worship, to greater holiness, to greater lives of obedience. And because I can't do that, I want to pray as we begin. So would you join me in praying one more time? Now, Father, your word is like an ocean with no bottom or shore, it is deep and wide. And I feel plunged into its depths. And the deeper that you've taken me, the weightier it's felt. And yet I still cannot fathom the full measure of the revelation of your word. You say that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son 
from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, we want to see your glory this morning. Would you let us receive your word and grasp the fullness of your grace? Grasp the fullness of your truth. I do pray that you'd guard us from the darkness that would swallow us and keep us from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you might open our eyes to see and hearts to seek the unsearchable riches of Christ. And ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've not already gotten to John 17, I invite you to get there. Over the next three weeks, we'll cover the full section. Uh, This morning, we'll just invest our time in the first five verses. Begins. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Five verses. We'll see that in some sense Jesus begins by praying for himself and then it'll extend to his disciples and then even to disciples who have not yet committed to Christ. It's kind of like a concentric ring of proximity. Maybe a good pattern to follow, but I'm not concerned about the pattern of Jesus. What I want us to see is the fullness of the glory of God in this passage. The title of the message is For Glory because I believe that God sets his glory on display in this text. It is part of his heartbeat. The the difficulty I find in preaching is this. I have a love-hate relationship with it. I love being able to enter into the scriptures, even maybe a short passage like this. And I love having the, the Spirit of God open my eyes to see what's in it. And frankly, the more that I see, the more that I study. And the more that I study, the more that I see. And after a week of that pattern... There is far more in this text that I would love to be able to share with you. And I hate that I can't do that. I hate that there's things I need to not say. And so this is my encouragement for you. May this message perhaps be like just the starting point. Maybe this little tidbit of God's truth would whet your appetite for more. That after this morning, you might be launched into seeking more to feed on, more to meditate on, more to digest. There are uh, notes out in the lobby at both doors, and on the back of those notes is a section uh, of follow-up questions. There's some uh, further research and additional resources for you, and, and they're designed so that this might not be the only meal that you eat this week but that you might be nourished by the word of God every day and grow stronger as you know it. So uh, if, if you would like to get those notes, you can get them on the way out. It'd be good for a small group discussion. It'd be good for a conversation with a spouse or a friend. 
Um, but I mention that because I know that um, I might say things that you would want to hear more. And frankly, uh, I may shamefully neglect things that you think I should have said and didn't. And um, I, I mention it because we're only going to cover this section through three lenses, maybe. First, we'll look at the reason for Jesus' prayer, what Jesus' um, request actually was, and what was the result that he was shooting for. So let's begin with um, what I'll call the reason and maybe the heading for dark days ahead. If we look at just verse 1, it begins like this. Jesus has spoken these words. Whenever I parachute into a text of scripture and see words like this, I want to know what words? What did Jesus just say? What did Jesus just say? It's, it's kind of like if you jumped into a conversation that somebody else w was having in the lobby. You might hear the words and you might follow along from that point on. You might even give a fake laugh when you see other people laughing, but for you to get the joke or for you to understand the reality, you need to be able to hear the full thing in context. A whole lot of embarrassment, a whole lot of um, misunderstanding, and a whole lot of heresy can start if we miss the context. So what did Jesus just say when Jesus had spoken these words? What words? Well, we go back into John 16, and I can just show you the last verse of that. John 16, 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we see that Jesus, as he begins this prayer, knows that trouble is coming. And trouble is a great occasion, a great reason to pray. But maybe you notice in this passage that Jesus also says, Having said these things, what are those things? And this is where it's advantageous not just to read a section isolated and maybe what's before it and what's after it, but in some sense to know what was the author saying way back even in the beginning. And we have time to go through chapters 13 through 16 because that's essentially what's taking place. That's the most immediate context. Jesus had just had uh, his final evening with the disciples in the upper room and he's on his way to the cross. We're talking hours, moments, minutes before the cross. But even before that, to, to know what the author is saying in this little prayer, my incursion for you and the notes instruct you to, to study. What does Jesus see in 13 and 16? And what does he uh, see in John 1 through 16? Uh, let me go back. So let's read it again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He says, the hour has come. I'll just, I'll just read it so you can see it. He lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. And I want to ask a similar question. What hour is he talking about? To, to know a bit of what he's talking about we can go back to see what John has already included. We know in the very beginning of the, the book, Jesus' first miracle turns water into wine. And as he speaks to his mother, his mother asking, they've run out of wine, and Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
Jesus has in his mind that there is a future coming, a future hour, and has not yet come. But Jesus is doing certain work and speaking certain words. And we see in some cases the, the reason, verse 11. This was the first of Jesus' signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus also knew that his hour was a relevant topic when he was being pursued. In John 7 and John 8, we learn that there are people seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Yet many people believe in him. And it's, it's reaching ahead. You can see throughout the story. The hour is coming, but it hasn't come. The hour has not come, but it's coming. Jesus in John 12 reveals to us what this hour most specifically is. John 12, 27 to 28, 31 through 33. And Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus continues by saying, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And verse 33 gives us the clarity we need to know what the hour is. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. In Jesus' mind, as he looked forward to the hour that was coming, he knew it was coming. He knew there was a dark day ahead. And he knew what all that would entail. He knew about the cross. But he knew about all of the things that would be included with him going to the cross. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew that Herod was going to mock him. He knew the soldiers were going to abuse him. He knew the crowd was going to despise him. He knew the thorns and the nails were going to pierce him. He knew the father was going to forsake him. He knew the weight of the world's sins were going to be laid on his shoulders. He knew dark days were ahead and so he goes to his father in prayer. There's three things I want to draw out of that concept. The first is this. No one can interfere with God's perfect plan and timing. God has a plan, and he's going to see that plan through to completion. It's a good plan when it comes, and it's a good plan when it comes. Meaning that nothing and no one can get in the way of God's plan. It's not going to come too early, and it's not going to come too late. That simple concept gives me peace in all kinds of things that I wish would be different because I trust that God has a perfect plan and I've not missed it. I'm not late to the show. It's going to come right when God wants it. The second thing I notice, God's loving plan does not exclude suffering. There may be in your mind that if somebody loves somebody, they would not allow them to suffer anything. And what we have in this case is Jesus, whom God loved and was well pleased, who never did a thing that would warrant 
punishment or pain, who only obeyed his father, who only produced righteousness, and here he is experiencing dark days ahead. God's loving plan does not exclude suffering, and I think that means that God has a purpose for the plan, purpose for the pain in the plan. And I find peace in that. And last thing, which might be good for future discussion in a small group. God's firm plan does not exclude prayer. And you might be thinking, Brandon, if, if God's plan is as firm as you say it is, and his time is going to come when only he says it's right, why pray? You know? Why pray? If the plan is firm, the timing is firm, what can I possibly do? You've already made the point I cannot interfere with God's plan. And I might just say, well, because prayer is a part of God's firm plan. When we go to him in prayer and express our need in him, he is glorified. He is seen as the one who is powerful and wise and good. And so by going to him in prayer, we are glorifying him by putting ourselves in a position of humility and need and allowing him to do what only he can do. And this is why Jesus goes to his father in prayer, though he knows the plan. So let's take a look at the request. Continue in verse 1. Father, your hour has come. Here's the request. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. With only hours between Jesus and the cross, Jesus prayed, in some cases for two things, maybe we could reduce it down to one. Jesus prays, God, glorify me that, there's an end in Jesus' mind as he's requesting for God to glorify him. God, glorify me that I might glorify you. When facing dark days ahead, I don't know that I would have prayed like Jesus prayed. Meaning, when, when I see dark days ahead, what do I pray for? Where does my heart quickly go to? Father, get me out of this. Father, let me escape. Father, don't let this dark thing happen that I think is going to happen. I want to escape the dark days ahead. Jesus doesn't pray for that. And some say, he, in some cases he's saying, Father, me, I'm, I'm walking this path. I'm going to go to the cross. And as I do, I want you to glorify me so that I might glorify you. The, the, the words glory and glorify, I know that they are church words. We use them all the time. Our purpose statement at Keystone is we exist as a church to glorify God. Gosh, I think the glory idea is difficult to comprehend. Like, how do I give God glory? God is not deficient in anything. I don't give anything to God that he hasn't first given me. So what does it mean for me to glorify God? In this case, what does it mean for Jesus to glorify God? One area that, or one author that has helped me, is his name's Jonathan Edwards. 
uh, I have shared maybe one other quote from him over the past 15 years in ministry. And when I did, I had so many caveats uh, because he uses big words. Um, he wrote a long time ago, so it sounds a little dated. Um, but I'm going to trust that the Spirit of God uh, will help us understand what he says here uh, in this quote. Thus we see the great end of God's works which is so variously expressed in scripture, the glory of God, by which name it is most commonly called in the scripture. It is fitly compared to an effulgence, or you might know the word emanation of light from a luminary. Light is the external expression, exhibition, manifestation of the excellency of the light, of the sun, for instance. It is the abundant, extensive emanation and communication of the fullness of the sun to innumerable beings that partake of it. It is by this glory that the sun itself is seen and that surrounding objects receive all their luster, beauty, and brightness. It is by this that all nature receives life, comfort, and joy. If I could try to take what I've learned from Edwards and put it into a, a line, I might just say this. To glorify God is to shine a light on his goodness. God is good. And Jesus wants the world to know it. And so he says, Father, shine a light on me so that I can shine a light on you. Let me be able to reflect the radiance of your manifold perfections. Like the sun, you have excellency. And we want to see it. And I want others to see it. And Jesus says in verse 4, I have shined a light on your manifold perfections in many ways through my works. But I'm about to embark on the singular moment in history when all of God's manifold perfections will be put on display. Maybe you can consider what, what are the attributes of God that come to reality, that, be, or that are emitted from the cross, that shine forth from the cross, God's love for the world is put on supreme display at the cross. His power is fully and clearly on display as Jesus rises from the grave. God's hatred of all that would destroy the world and defame his name is on display as we see the gruesomeness of the cross. His wrath, the fact that sin is such a big deal, that a just judge has to punishment is on display at the cross. And his mercy is on display. That he would not punish us, though deserving. God's faithfulness is on display. Jesus is saying, Father, you are radiant. And I want to reflect all of your radiance to the world. So give me everything I need to endure the cross. Don't let me take the easy way out through suicide. Don't let me defile your name by going with threats and curses to those who are doing this. 
Don't let me be swallowed up by pity and bitterness. Father, shine a light on me so that they might see my work and glorify you, shine a light on you. Jesus recognizes that it's a problem when we don't see God. Jesus knows there, is a, there, there are people in this world who have not seen him. For some, the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of other believers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some, they have seen the glory and found it to be less than satisfying and rejected the glory of the creator for the glory of created things. The, the joy that we lost in the garden is because we stopped seeing God as glorious. Jesus sees it, it, it's a problem to not see God and so he goes to him and says, Father, I want everyone to see you as you are. Some people think you're a, a myth or a fairy tale and you're not. Some people think that you're absent and uncaring and you're not. Some people think that you're cruel and you're not. Father, Help me show them your full goodness. Um, later this week, you're going to see some examples of glory. Um, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, taking place in 2021, are going to happen uh, this, I think, uh, Friday, our opening ceremonies. And if you watch the Olympics, you will see displays of glory. And what I mean by that is there are, there are small glories Whenever you have something that's excellent and that excellence goes on display, we see glory. The angels said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his, not holiness, glory. Glory is the thing you see and you will see some lower G glory if you watch the Olympics. Because these athletes from all over the world have invested the last four years and in many cases their entire lives to developing skills and talents, investing hours in the gym, investing time in their diet, experiencing all of the pain of injuries and struggles to, to strive and fight for this one moment to receive the glory of the gold medal. Um, whenever I watch the Olympics, I am tempted to, to, to think, just how much faster are they than me? In fact, I wish there was a nation, uh, the nation of average Joes. And the, and the nation of average Joes would send their um, people. I, I want to see the guy who uh, used to maybe be a college athlete 15 years ago, maybe a bum knee, still thinks he's athletic, but he's not. I want to see him compete in the Olympics, right next to the other elite athletes. I want to see the 33-year-old the, the woman who's, who, who runs probably three times a week and is pretty health conscious, eats salad and stuff. I, I want to see her compete in the Olympics. Now, the, the point of that would not be to see if Joe and Josephine would win any gold medal. They're not. The, the, the point of them would be to show, in some ways, shine a light on just how magnificent those athletes really are. If there's ever a thought in your mind that what you see people do in the Olympics is not spectacular, uh, you are an ignorant fool. You are blind to what is actually glorious. And maybe the thing that you need is somebody to show you. I think a nation of average Joes would show you glory. There is one athlete that uh, 
I am going to pay attention to. Uh, maybe you've seen her in the news this week uh, or maybe a couple weeks ago. Uh, during the Olympic time trials, uh, she was able to qualify the, for the Olympics and in doing so, uh, broke the world record for the 400-meter hurdles. Um, her name is Sydney uh, McLaughlin. Um, Sydney is 21 years old and will be representing uh, the United States uh, in track and field. So take a look. See, because she broke the record uh, at the time trials, you might get to see some Olympic glory with her. But the reason I'm highlighting her is because she has an interesting take on the glory of the Olympics. Because if I, this is her Instagram post. I can't read the date on it, but it's probably from a couple weeks ago. If I zoom in on it, um, you might be able to see her quote. She says, I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything, but by grace and through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. Here's an athlete who recognizes that the point of the Olympics is not to glorify ourselves. The point of the Olympics is to glorify the one who gave her everything that she has to be able to compete. He gave her the strength. He gave her the endurance. He gave her her body, her legs, her muscles, her heart. He gave her everything and she says, records are going to come and go. I'm not doing this for my own recognition. What I want to do is display the glory of God and so I'm going to run. Win or lose, my goal is to glorify God. We've got to get to the result. Because Jesus has this little section wedged in the first five verses that would be appropriate to spend an entire morning on, if not an entire series on. Jesus says to the Father, since you have given me, him, son of man, authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus has a result in mind in his dark days, in his request that he would be able to complete his mission. His mission to give glory to God and to give joy to the people that God has given him to be a good shepherd of. And maybe you see the two groups of people. Jesus has authority over all flesh. That's everyone. That's universal. But God has a different specific group of people who he has given Jesus and said, Jesus, you have authority to give this group of people, this specific group of people whom I love from before the foundation of the world, you have authority to give them eternal life. Jesus has come to give eternal life and he defines it for us, knowing him. My point in this to notice is that eternal life is seeing and savoring the glory of God. I know you... you think of eternal life and you've been influenced by Tom and Jerry and your picture of what heaven is is so distorted and small. 
eternal life. And maybe you just focus on the eternality of it, the fact that it will go on and on forever. It has a long-lasting duration. But what I want us to see is the life piece in it. Life for the ages might be a better translation. Jesus came to give life. And we know from earlier in John, we're talking fullness of life. We're talking an abundance of life. Not just in quantity, but in quality. Jesus wants us to experience the fullness of joy and joy forevermore in the presence of God. Might be how the psalmist would say it. Jesus came to give eternal life. And what is eternal life? It's to see God and to not turn away from it, but to love it, to savor it. And Jesus gives this eternal life to a group of people and you might be thinking, well, am I a part of this group? I don't know. Jesus came to give eternal life to whoever believes. Whoever. Whoever. You know the the verse I'm going to go to. It's the verse you've been trained to repeat back since you were a child. But the the words within John 3.16 through 18 are weighty words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that Whoever believes in him should not perish. That's the opposite of eternal life. Should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because... He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. And maybe you can pick up on why I'm using the word light for glory. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It strikes me in this passage that God is not required to bring eternal life to anyone. He doesn't get anything out of this. In other words, he's not deficient in anything. He doesn't need us, so he has to save us so he can get something. He does this on his own free account, which makes what Jesus did to me astounding. Jesus was willing to endure the cross, and as Hebrew says, despise or scorn its shame for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before Jesus was the glory of God. Jesus saw it and savored it and wanted to see more of it. He was willing to let go of everything he had, both in heaven and then on earth, to be able to see it. The glory of the God is of great value. And when the glory is great, there's nothing we won't suffer, which is my third point in this little section. When the glory is great, there's nothing we won't suffer. What allowed Jesus to go to the cross? The joy he had in the glory of God. He saw it. He savored it. He had eternal life. He had the authority to give it. And he wanted us to be able to see it and savor it as well. So when you think about what does it mean for you to glorify God, you might ask, what do you need to do to shine a light on the goodness of God? 
in all things that you do, whether you eat or drink or do everything, do it all to the glory of God. In the notes section, there's a spot for you to think through the domains of your life. What might it mean for you to glorify God? Now pick a domain. Pick your marriage. What might it be for you to glorify God in your marriage? Does that mean you pray in your marriage? Maybe. Maybe. But you know that the, your marriage is, in some cases, a pattern of a cosmic-type love. That God refers to marriage as this cosmic mystery of God's love in his church. So your goal as a married couple is to display the kind of love that God has for the church. Husbands, the kind of love that Jesus has for his bride. Brides, the kind of respect that the church has for Christ. So what might that mean? It might mean you have to suffer. It might mean humiliation. It might mean bearing the pain of forgiveness. It might mean the embarrassment or the discomfort and awkwardness of going to counseling to do anything that you need to do to allow your marriage to reflect the glory of God. If you don't have a big picture of the glory of God, you're not going to invest in it. You're not going to suffer for it. Marriages fall apart not because they don't have good communication, but because they don't grasp the glory and goodness of God. And if they did, they might invest in their marriages. Pick a domain. Pick your work. How might you work to the glory of God when it might not be standing up and boasting in all that you've done in a company? It might not be taking the the salary that you have and spending it however you want, but recognizing God gave me this. All my strength, all of my hard work, all of the health I have. If people praise me because I'm smart, if people praise me because I'm diligent in my work, I need to deflect that to God. That's not glory that's due me. That's glory that's due God. God is the one who gave me these things. I want to allow other people to see my good works and give glory to God, not me. Pick your domain. There are lots of domains. Art. How do you glorify God in art? How do you glorify God in sports? How do you glorify God in eating? How do you glorify God in pick your domain of life? The big idea for this morning is that Jesus prays for us to see the glory of God because the glory of God is the greatest good and deepest delight we can fathom. And he came so that we might see and savor it Tonight, um, when it gets dark, it might be late, go outside. If you have kids, take your kids with you. And see if you can see the stars. Ask your kids if they can see them. And if you can, ask them what they look like. And they might say small, uh, maybe twinkly. That's good. Um, If you can't see them, maybe ask, well, what's keeping us from seeing the stars? They might recognize that there are clouds that will hide the stars and the stars are behind what we see right in front of us. And you might say light pollution. If you have a really bright kid, pretty precocious kid, talk about light pollution. There's so much light here on earth um, that it, it clouds our ability to see the stars in the sky because there's so much light here. And then teach them or remind yourself that these stars aren't small and twinkly. They are massive balls of fire bigger than you can even imagine. 
And they're not twinkly. They are massive, fiery balls of explosion. And maybe you can show your kids that. Go onto YouTube, search what do stars look like? Maybe how big are stars? And you can tell them that the reason that we know that stars are not small and twinkly, but big and massive, is because we have something that's called a telescope. And a telescope will magnify what appears small so that we might see it for what it really is. Teach them that. You can teach them. The, the telescope helps us to see big things that look small. And then you can tell them, Jesus is kind of like a telescope. God might seem small for a lot of people. A lot of people don't see him as big, important, glorious, radiant. They don't see his perfections in their eyes. They might not see them at all, see him at all. They might not see a big picture and they just see these little pinpricks in the sky. It's a small God. And what Jesus does and what Jesus came to do is to be the telescope that allows us to see the reality of God's glory. My prayer for us is that we would see it, continually see it, continually know it, continue to experience the eternal life that comes from seeing and savoring the glory of God. So you pray with me one more time. Father, salvation and glory and power, these things belong to you. We might pray like the psalmist, one thing we ask, one thing we seek is that we might dwell in your presence and gaze upon your beauty all of our days. Father, I pray that you would lift the veil that keeps us from seeing your glory and that with unveiled face we might behold it and be transformed by it. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us eyes to see and hearts to seek your glory at all times and in all things. Lord, I pray that we would use the very gifts that you've given us to serve in such a way so that the world might know that you are the one who supplies us with all that we have. Father, it's through this access to grace that we stand and rejoice in the hope of your glory. I pray that you'd let us be glorified with Christ as we suffer with him. For it's from you and through you and to you that belong all glory forever and ever. Amen.